Okay, well, that means we are all set to go. And, of course, then I will say the words. Turn with me, if you will, to the place where this week's Torah portion begins. It's uh, the last Torah portion in the book of Shemot, or Exodus. It's called uh, Pekudai, because it says these are uh, Pekudai. The uh, Ha, let's see, that would be um, Mishkan. And it's the um, the accounts of Ha Mishkan. The um, Basically, the... Um, the accounting of all the stuff that was put together here for the Mishkan, even as the taber- even the tabernacle of the testimony, as they were rendered according to the commandment of Moshe through the service of the Levites by the hand of Ithamar, son of Aaron the priest, and it says Betzalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made all that you had commanded Moshe. With him was that other fellow, the number two man, a holy of tent of the father, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan, craftsman a skillful workman, weaver in colors, blue, purple, and scarlet, and fine linen. And then we're going to get some of the numbers here. Um, All of the gold that was used for the work, all of the work of the sanctuary, even the gold of the offering, was 29 talents. Now, my notes, depending upon whose figures you believe, exactly how much that is, but it's something on the order of 1,500 ounces. So even at today's uh, ridiculously suppressed prices, um, you know, that's... um, Let's see, 2,000 times 1,500. Yeah, that's a whole lot of gold. <laughs> um, six million bucks or so, five million, six million bucks worth, depending upon what what numbers you use. But um, a lot of gold. And um, it was not just exactly the um, the 29 talents, but also an additional 730 shekels uh, after the shekel, the sanctuary. Then on to the silver. That was uh, numbered. Um, was uh, 100 talents. And um, seventeen hundred six uh, seventy-five shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary. At a back ahead, that is half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary for every one that passed through them that were uh, that were numbered, all the males. And we're going to see this number again in the uh, book of Numbers here. But it was in fact, and this is actually the first time we see it in the scripture, six hundred three thousand five hundred and fifty men. Um, and the hundred talents of silver were, they were used for things like casting the sockets of the sanctuary, the sockets of the veil, hundred sockets for the hundred talents, a talent per socket. So these are heavy, um, these are heavy sockets to hold this thing down. Of the seven, of the thousand seven hundred and seventy-five shekels, he made hooks for the pillars, overlaid the capitals, made fillets for them. The brass of the offering, well, it amounted to seventy-two talents and uh, twenty-four hundred shekels. And with that, he made the door of the tent of meeting, the brazen altar, the grating, all the vessels of the altar, all the sockets of the court round about and of the gate, the pins for the tabernacle and of the court. On into the blue, purple, scarlet, and uh, fine linen, they made plated garments for ministering in the holy place. Now, interesting, I usually read that, blue, purple, scarlet, and fine linen, but in this case, it just says blue, purple, and scarlet. The plated garments for ministering in the holy place. They made the set-apart garments for Aaron, as Yehuah commanded Moshe. The ephod was made out of gold, blue, purple, scarlet, and this time, fine twined linen. They did beat the gold, it says, into really thin plates. Now, this is an interesting process. They were making gold threads. How'd they do it? They beat it into really thin plates. Then they cut it into threads and then worked it in with the blue and the purple and the scarlet in uh, into the fine linen, the work of the skillful workmen. They made shoulder pieces for it, joined them together at the two ends. The skillfully woven band that was on it, and uh, that was used to gird it on. It was the same piece like the work thereof, made out of gold and blue, purple, and scarlet, fine twine linen. 
This number, this phrase, rather, is going to appear a lot. We're going to see it, uh, especially here in a minute. As Yahuwah commanded Moshe. On then to the, uh, the, the stones. They wrought the onyx stones, enclosed them in settings of gold, graven them with the engravings of the signet, and uh, according to the names of the Benai Israel. Those were put on the shoulder plates of the ephod to be out of the shoulder pieces to be stones for a memorial for the Benai Israel, as Yahuwah commanded Moshe. And then he made the breastplate, the work of the skillful workman, uh, like the ephod. It was a gold, blue, purple, scarlet, and fine twined linen. It was square, four square. They made the breastplate double, a span of the length and a span of the width. Then they set in it four rows of stone, a carnelian, a topaz, and a smarg. In the first row, second row, a carbuncle, sapphire, and an emerald. Third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. In the fourth row, a barrel, an onyx, and a jasper, enclosed in fittings of gold in their settings. Now, I'm going to make an observation here. I'll come back to it in just a second. But you notice we are seeing not only a lot of the same things that we've already seen before, but in, um, in this case, and in at least several others we're going to see here, almost word for word. A listing again, for example, of the stones, the um, the three sets of four. And the stones, again, were according to the names of the Benai Israel, twelve, according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, each one according to his name for the twelve tribes. The breastplate, they made for it plated chains, wreathed in work of pure gold, two settings of gold and two rings. They put the two rings on the two ends of the breastplate. Now, we're going to see a lot of twos in here. Remember that part? We talked about that here a few weeks back. They put the two wreathen chains of gold on the two rings at the ends of breastplate. Other two ends of the two wreathen chains, they put on the two settings on the shoulder pieces and the forepart. Then they made two rings of gold, put them on the two ends of the breastplate on the edge toward the side of the ephod inward. And then they made two rings of gold, put them on the two shoulder pieces in the ephod in the front part, um, close by the coupling, above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they bound the breastplate by the rings thereof under the rings of the ephod with a thread of blue that it might be upon the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And the breastplate would not be then loosed from the ephod as Yahuwah commanded Moshe. Now, as I'm reading this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop and think, uh, isn't this interesting? Uh, again, we have we've seen this before. And whenever we see words that are almost the same before, and I remarked on that sets of two. Here, here are those same sets of two again, and very, very similar. Uh, I didn't check to see if the Hebrew is identical. I don't think it's perhaps quite identical, but it's very, very It's enough close that it kind of leaps off the page at you almost, right? And, um, well, the term that immediately comes to mind for me is chiasm, a.k.a. atbash in the Hebrew. The sets of stones and the rows that were described there, the sets of twos here. A lot of things were repeated. And again, we saw this back in chapter 28 here in this very same book. And uh, as I looked at this and, and thought about it, okay, it's, again, it's, it's like a flashing red light. Yeah, what, what does that kind of tend to say to us? Hey, this is like the close brackets for some open brackets before. Now, in this case, there are several chapters in between, essentially without counting verses or, or words or anything, and that's probably the right way to do it, is to either count words or characters. But uh, we're um, about ten chapters or so. Remember, the chapters are kind of arbitrary. But about ten chapters later, if you split that in half and ask, what's in the middle there? Well, I think you can probably guess the answer, right? What would be the thing that's being set off by the um, potential, at least, Atbash? And the answer is... Yeah, this unfortunate incident of idolatry, the most uh, probably 
foremost case of idolatry in uh, in Scripture that we see. Um, with the possible exception of the reason why Israel got kicked out and then after that uh, the southern kingdom too. But um, all of it springs from this essential starting place. The uh, the idea of uh, we need a God. Well, actually, God's plural, and they made themselves one. And all of this stuff, this bracketry, seems to surround that issue, almost like it's being set apart, and rightfully so. And um, what's really fascinating about it is if you look at so much that follows here, you can't help but say, well, and that's exactly right. The reason why the tabernacle seems to have been built, not only was it a place for him to dwell among them, but because of this, um, this transgression with the golden calf. So maybe it's no surprise that it would be set off with sets of words and words describing things that are associated with the part the building, the um, the mishkan, the tent of meeting, um, all of the pieces of the accoutrements, the um, the furniture, the things that the high priest and his uh, sons wear, and so forth. Kind of fascinating. At least uh, it really struck me this time around. And we're going to see a little bit more of this too because the description continues. We got the um, the robe of the ephah work olive blue, the hole in the midst thereof, kind of like a coat of mail, with a binding around the edge so that it would not be rent. And they made upon the skirts of the robe pomegranates, blue and purple, scarlet and twine linen, and bells of gold. They were on the uh, um, bottom of the skirt between the pomegranates, round, around, round about. A bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate, and uh, all of this to minister as Yahuwah commanded Moshe. They made these tunics of fine linen, woven work for Aaron and his sons, and the miter of fine linen, the goodly head tires of fine linen, and the linen breeches of fine twine linen. The girdle was of fine twine linen, blue, purple, and scarlet, the work of the weaver in colors. Here it is again, as Yahuwah commanded Moshe. Then, we remember this, they made this plate to the holy crown out of pure gold and upon it was engraved the words right kadosh le yahuwah holy unto yod heh vav heh they tied upon it a thread of blue to fasten it upon the mitre above as yahuwah commanded moshe and thus it says verse 32 in the chapter all of the work was finished for the tabernacle of the mishkan the tent of meeting and uh, the children of Israel made or did according to all that Yahuwah commanded Moshe. And as they were commanded, so did they. And that's, um, well, the, the phrase appears often enough. We ought to stop and say, yeah, this must be important, right? As Yahuwah commanded, so they did. They brought the tabernacle unto Moshe, the tent with all of its furniture, its clasps, its boards, its bars, its pillars, its sockets, the covering of ram skins dyed red, seal skins, the veil of the screen, the ark of the testimony, the staves, the ark cover, the table, the vessels, the showbread, the menorah, the lamps, uh, lamps to be set in order, all the vessels, oil for the light, and the golden altar, the anointing oil, the sweet incense, the screen for the door of the mishkan or the ohel, the tent, the brazen altar, altar, its gratings of brass, its staves, vessels, lavender, and base, the hangings of the court, its pillars and sockets, screens, the cords, the pins, the instruments of service for the mishkan of the tent of meeting, the plated garments for ministering therein, the holy place for Aaron, the Kohen, and the garments for his son to minister in the office of Kohenim, according to all the Yahuwah commanded Moshe, so the children of Israel did all the work. And then we see this. Now, this is another interesting place. Rashi likes to note that uh, this looks a lot like Psalm 90. It also has kind of a ring to it of Genesis chapter 2. 
We've heard these words before, right? Moshe saw the work, and behold, they had done it as Yahuwah commanded, even so they had done it. And Moshe blessed him. Uh, not just it was good, it was done as commanded. And again, the um, the concept was he originally in Genesis, uh, we see it in the first few chapters, he made a place for man, literally a universe and an earth and a place for man to dwell. And what we have here is essentially a um, kind of a microcosm, the other direction in, where man is going to make a place smaller, but certainly in accord with his instruction for him to be among them. Chapter 40 says, um, Yehuah then spoke unto Moshe, and he said, On the first day of the first month you shall rear up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. First day of the first month. Well, this is the beginning of months. You know what? We just had that here in the last couple of days. In there you will put the ark of the testimony and the screen it with the veil. Uh, Bring in the table, set it in order, and the bread that's on it. Bring in the menorah, light the lamps, set the golden altar up for incense before the ark of the testimony. Put the screen in the door of the tabernacle. Then set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the mishkan. And then set the lava between the tent of meeting and the altar. Put water in it. Set up the court round about. Hang the screen of the gate of the court. Then take the anointing oil. Anoint the tabernacle. Everything in it. Hollow it. Hallow it. Um, Set it apart. All the furniture. It is to be kadosh. Literally set apart. You shall anoint the altar of burnt offering with its vessels. Sanctify it. It will be most holy. Uh, Here's that word again. Kadesh. Kodeshim. You shall anoint the lover in its base, sanctify it, set it apart, and then bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the Mishkan and wash them with water. And then pour or put upon Aaron the holy garments and anoint him, sanctify him, that he may minister to me in the office of Cohen. And you shall bring his sons, put tunics on them, and anoint them as you did with their dad, and so that they may minister to me in the office of Cohen. And their anointing shall be to them get this, for an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. Thus it says, did Moshe, according to all that Yahuwah commanded him, so did he. Now, at this point I have a note. If you think you've heard it a lot so far, we're going to see it um, uh, even more before the, uh, the portion completes here. But in total, in this Parsha, called Pekudai, that phrase appears 18 times came to pass in the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, that the Mishkan was reared up. Moshe reared up the tabernacle, laid the sockets, set the boards, put the pillars, the bars in place, and reared up the pillars. Uh, and I've got a note in here. It says, he is this in, in, in actual order? Did he put up the curtains before the support? How? And certainly there's been, as you might suspect, some midrash on this. One of the claims is that there was something miraculous going on here. Um, and that's an interesting explanation. That's, that's about all I can say because uh, you just look at it and say, well, interesting. He spread the tent over the tabernacle, put the covering of the tent upon it as Yahuwah commanded Moshe. Then he took and he put the testimony into the ark, set the staves on it, put the ark cover above the ark, brought it into the tabernacle, and set up the veil of the screen, and screened the ark of the testimony. Ready? As Yahuwah commanded Moshe. And he put the table in the tent of meeting on the side to the north, uh, outside the veil. And um, 
Well, I've got a little interesting note here. I don't know if this is true um, because it's essentially it's oral tradition. But um, the the claim is this thing was big that there were eighty two thousand women that worked on it in order to weave it. That's a lot of um, women hours in there. Then he set a row of bread in order upon it before Yahuwah. Again, as Yahuwah commanded Moshe, put the menorah in the tent of meeting over against the table on the south side. Then he lighted the lamps before Yahuwah, as Yahuwah commanded Moshe, put the golden altar uh, in the tent of meeting uh, before the veil. And then he burned incense of sweet spices, as Yahuwah commanded Moshe. He put the screen of the door on the tabernacle, and the altar of burnt offering he set at the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And he offered upon it the burnt offering and the meal offering, as Yahuwah commanded Moshe. He set the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar, put water in it to wash, uh, so that Moshe and Aaron and his sons might wash their hands and uh, their feet at that uh, altar. When they went into the tent of meeting, when they came near unto Yahuwah, they should wash, of course, as Yahuwah commanded Moshe. Then they reared up the court around about the Mishkan and the altar. They set up the screen at the gate of the court. And so it says, Moshe finished the work. Finished the work. Now we're going to see this word. And this word is interesting. In the Hebrew, it's Ha-Anan. Ha-Anan. The cloud, Ha-Anan, covered the tent of meeting and the glory of Yahuwah filled the Mishkan. Now what's interesting, of course, is the first time we see this word Anan is in Genesis chapter 9 where um, Yah talks about putting his bow in Ha'anan, the cloud, as a reminder and as a sign of that covenant. So um, here is another, at least, um, word that harkens right back to that covenant as well. And it says here, this was an interesting uh, um, state of affairs. Moshe wasn't able to go in. He couldn't enter the tent of meeting because the cloud, Ha'anan, abode thereon, and the glory of Yahuwah literally filled it up. It filled that entire Mishkan. Now notice, up on top of the mountain, Moshe was able to enter the cloud, but uh, obviously, for some reason, this is different. This is uh, a, um, I guess you could say there's enough density or there's enough energy intensity inside the Mishkan here, he was not able to go in. So, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the Mishkan, the B'nai Israel went onward. They journeyed throughout all of the time that they're in the wilderness, throughout all their journeys. But, if the cloud was not taken up, well, they didn't journey until the day that it was. And then they did. The last verse in the Torah portion, and it's also, of course, the last verse in the book, says this, For the Anan of Yahuwah was upon the tabernacle by day, there was fire therein by night, in the sight of coal, all of the Benai Israel, the house, or the Beit Israel, the house of Israel, throughout all their journeys. And that's important. This cloud was uh, an ever-present feature. Now that this... Uh, um, place is prepared the cloud is there and um, Rambam had an interesting observation and I I sometimes think this is kind of a uh, a fitting way to close out the book of Exodus Uh, he says the exile really isn't complete until the day that Israel returns to their spiritual place not necessarily their land and given that um, there is a lot of uh, emphasis in here, and especially if this super uh, chiasm, the, the big um, multiple sets of words that set off this thing that, that's associated with the golden calf, 
Well, isn't it fitting then that um, we can say, yeah, their, their spiritual journey certainly is not complete until whatever it was that was set off there is literally not only taken away, but uh, completely atoned for. And of course, um, well, let's just say there is a whole lot more of the book still to go and a lot more indications of exactly how that's going to play out. It's going to take a while. So with that, um, the Torah portion ends. And... Um, I'll make one other observation, and that is that uh, there does look like there's a goal as the book ends, and that is that that Yah would dwell continuously with us. And we'll probably talk about that some more, too. Um, Day in and day out. So, as is traditional, I don't have a problem with this tradition, it's kind of an interesting one. Um, At the completion of the book, the tradition is to to say the words, and um, remember, this was the commandment that was given to Joshua as uh, he entered in the land. Be strong and of good courage. Kazakh. And so the saying goes like this, Kazakh, Kazakh, Venit, Kazakh. And may it be so. So come out of her, oh my people, for the time has come to judge Babylon. Well, this week we're going to talk about the last Torah portion in the book of Exodus. It's called Kekudeh, and it starts towards, uh, well, towards the end, of course, in about to chapter 38 of the book. Um, goes all the way through the end, as I mentioned. And what, what struck me about this one, this year is a bit different than um, than previous years. Uh, a, because i seen something, I, I, I saw something I have not seen before. Not that we hadn't really kind of noticed it, but it struck me in a different way, I guess is the best way to put it, than it uh, did before. I mentioned that a bit last night. I'm going to elaborate some on it today. And I'm also going to introduce this the way I have, it seems like, more than once of late, simply because, yeah... I know when, uh, when um, especially people that come out of the Sun God Day tradition, and there's a lot of that going around, and I'm certainly one of those, when we look at some of these things, we go, why does he keep repeating this stuff so often? Right? We had all this discussion about the temple and all the pieces and all the things that are being donated and how they're going to construct uh, all the various pieces, parts, and, and I just remember thinking what I uh, hearkened back to years ago. Now, I'm, I'm uh, not, by the way, buying into this. I'm just repeating what it is that many of us have probably thought. I'm going to suggest it's wrong, but here you go. This is repetitious, right? Well, it's probably repetitious for a reason, for a reason but it's um, it's Old Testament. Well, there you go. That's what we heard about in Sun God Day School. That means it's boring, and of course that is wrong. But um, what really struck me this week is that it's not only repetitious for the reason that you know an engineer might think he's trying to drive home a point. It's repetitious for another reason, too. And uh, I have talked about it before. There is, in fact, in the last few weeks, um, probably the most obvious, the most famous chiasm, that's the English term, or the most famous uh, atbash. I like the Hebrew better, as you know, because in this case, atbash is aleph, tav, beit, sheen. It's the first and last letters of the Hebrew language, and then the second to first and second to last. Describes exactly what we're seeing here, which is these nested brackets. This something that's important that's being set off. Well, last time what was being set off was the Sabbath. But it hit me as I was talking about this um, last night that there is um, there is another possible rationale too. And um, I hadn't thought about this before. Maybe some others have. I'm not claiming it's unique, but it just struck me, and I think it's worth passing along, especially for the other reasons that I'm going to lay out here in just a second. And that is, this looks like a great big atbash. 
And if you go and you compare, and I'll, I'll take you through this in just a second, chapter 39, which we are essentially reading this week, and uh, then go back and say, well, this does sound really familiar. Yeah, it's repetitious. It's, it's not the first time we've heard it. Uh, but is it boring? Well, maybe there's more to it than that. Anyway, it, uh, it's a great big oddbosh. So what is it? What is it I'm talking about? All right. Um, if you look at um, the places in chapter 39, where it's talking about all the work that those two guys, um, Bezalel and Aholiab, are doing, you'll see that there's these places where it looks uh, just plain downright parallel. Um, Ezekiel 39, starting all the places where it talks about the things that they're making here, and. Um, uh, starting with the um, the clothing that is being made, the robe of the ephod of roven work, all of blue. The robe had a hole in it, as in the hole of a coat of mail, binding about uh, around about so that it shouldn't be rent, and, and so forth and so on. There's a whole bunch of places in here where I know I've made this point before, where it says two of this, two of that. And if you go back and you compare, here's what you'll find. And I've got them marked, and I encourage people, um, don't take my word for it, but go through this. You'll see it. In chapter 28, ten chapters earlier here in the book of Exodus, it talks about making the ephod. Out of gold and blue and purple, scarlet and fine twine linen, the work of the skillful workman. Then it says it'll have two shoulder pieces joined to the two ends thereof, that it may be joined together. And then there's two onyx stones, and um, then there's more twos and more twos throughout the next little bit. Well, that's all interesting. Then it follows up with the breastplate of judgment, the work of the skillful workman. And then we're going to have these settings of stones, four rows of stones. The stones are named in order in each of the four rows. The stones shall be according to the names of the Benai Israel. Well, okay, have we heard this before? Yeah! And we heard it just this uh, last night when we reread this same... No, not the same, it's a different section. Uh, now it's talking about it in a different tense. And the only difference between these two, they're almost, not quite, word for word the same. And again, you can go and compare. In this case, it's verses um, the late um, the late twenties through the thirties of verse of chapter thirty-nine, where it talks about the same thing of the robe, the skillfully woven uh, band around the ephod has a hole in it, kind of like a coat of mail. That sounds familiar. That was twenty-eight thirty-two. They made the skirts around it, and then we got all those sets of two, and it ends with this: they made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold, and they engraved upon it. Kadosh le Yahuwah. And that's uh, identical to what it said in verse uh, 35 of chapter 28. What's different in all of these cases is the tense. In the first tense, it's here's what you're going to do. And in the second one, they did it. They did it. They did it. And then it completes by saying this. Thus was finished all of the work of the Mishkan, the hell of meeting, and the children of Israel made it. They did it according to all that Yahuwah commanded Moshe, and as he was, they were commanded, so they did. So all of that is, uh, well, that's all well and good. Um, what's the point? Well, the point is that it tells us in this next section that uh, after that, Moshe saw all the work. It was good. It was as Yahuwah commanded. Even so had they done it. And then we get to the end of the chapter, the end of the book, the end of the Torah portion, where they build, they erect the tent, and the uh, the cloud, the Anan, comes to dwell in it. So, all right, we've seen it repeated twice. First time before, the second time after. And it's talking about things that they did in the past tense. Um, why? Yeah, there's a repetition. There is an emphasis here. But I'm going to suggest there's even more to it than that. And it's one of the things that I want to outline, and it's really one of the things that I hope people will uh, 
Uh, if you haven't uh, heard some of this before, take special note of. If you have, but you've said, "Oh, that's just uh, that's just Mark going uh, all all over the top here, warning about things that may or may not actually happen." Well, they're eventually going to happen. Are they going to happen this year? I'm not saying that they necessarily will, but I am going to say, take heed. And here is why. And by the way, it's not like these things haven't been written for us for 2,000 years. But uh, I do think there are a lot of other indicators. We talk about them uh, when I do the news shows and talk about them on a Rev Shabbat with the Know the Times and the Seasons understanding. Yeah, eventually people are going to sit up and take notice. And eventually, folks, those who don't will find that it was too late. And this year, as I mentioned, there are a couple of other things that are important as well. So um, let me let me summarize this, and then we'll talk about what's in the middle of the Atbash. Because I think that's what's really fascinating about this. Uh, because there's this great big Atbash here, right? The Atbash is the brackets, the, uh, the HTML tag, as I referred to it uh, here uh, a week or so back. And it surrounds something. Well, what's it surround? It surrounds this whole story. Uh, arguably one of the most tragic, important, idolatrous stories in the whole book. Oh, yeah! The tragic incident at Mount Sinai with the uh, golden calf and all the things that happened there. Where the people that um, were told up front, or at least the book lays out that Yah knew up front, and then after uh, they have been saved, they did not die, Moshe intervened for them and they weren't whacked right there as they arguably deserved to be, and they knew it, and uh, a lot of them had wise hearts and willing hearts thereafter, so they did the work as commanded this time. I guess you can say that's a lesson learned. They... um, they're not the same people. They've arguably been saved. Here is this um, this dwelling place now that they have constructed amongst them for yod heh Now notice, he's going to send his messenger, but at least the cloud is going to be with them from here on out throughout the rest of the journey. And as I mentioned, verse 32 says, um, As Yahuwah commanded Moshe, all the work of the tabernacle was finished. Now, a couple of other notes about this. Eighteen times... 18 times in this one portion, this one Torah parsha here, it says, um, as Yahuwah commanded Moshe. And the segment ends with Moshe did, according to all that Yahuwah had commanded him, so he did. This came to pass in the first month in the second year, first day of the month. Well, you know what? Um, depending upon exactly how you you mark the calendar, we are at least very, very close to that by a lot of reckonings, um, the way I tend to think that it uh, it could be, but I'm not going to say that we uh, we have to accept the same understanding on the calendar because admittedly there is some ambiguity. It will eventually be straightened out. But that could have been just here in the last week or so. So we're talking about a similar time frame to now. Hmm, that's kind of interesting as well. And... Um, what else was in this great big Atbash that uh, I keep referring to? Well, let's go to about the middle of the great big Atbash where we have the um, the things that are going to be made and then the things that were made, and they were made by those people that were literally infused with the Ruach HaKodesh, his spirit, the spirit of Elohim, and uh, the tablets are in there, and um, the Atbash about the Sabbath is in there, I mentioned, but there's this. Let's see here. There's a place where there is a reference to um, a name of Yah, a name of the um, of the um, the creator of the universe. Now, this is not one 
that uh, that I often refer to. There are a number of them: uh, Yahuwah Zadiknu, Yahuwah Vitzivenu, Yahuwah Rafa, our healer, Yahuwah Nisi. That um, you hear fairly frequently. This one, as far as I know, essentially there are some other uses of the word, but uh, this essentially only appears this one place, right here in the middle of this atbash. And not only that, there's another little smaller atbash that is in here that uh, makes shh, makes clear we, we don't miss it. So if we if we divide about in half. Those uh, those ten chapters here, where we have the the things they're going to make and the things that they made, word for word, the difference is the tense. In the in the second case, they done made it. Then it says to this, this says this in the middle here somewhere. Um, Behold, he says, I'm going to make a covenant. I make a covenant, present tense. Before all your people, I'll do marvels. Things have not been wrought in the earth nor in any nation. All the people among which you are will see the work of Yahuwah that I'm about to do. It is something else. It is tremendous. Observe, therefore. What I am commanding you this day. I'm going to drive out all these peoples before you. Amorite, Hittite, Canaanite, Perizzite, Hivite, Jebusite. Now, here we go. Here's the Atbash. See if we can spot it. Verse 12 says, and again, this is verse 12 of chapter 34 at this point. Take heed to yourself, lest you, and in Hebrew, the word here is cut. Um, Tikrit, cut. A Brit, a covenant. Don't do it. And you'll find that this one set of uh, three words, essentially, um, lest you make the covenant, is repeated right here in verse 12. Oh, yeah, and it shows up again in verse 15. Word for word in the Hebrew. Hmm. So um, what's in between? Well, we're going to get there in just a second. But what does it say? Take heed lest you make this covenant with the inhabitants of the land. That'll be a snare. Right there in the midst of you. What are you going to do instead? Break down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, cut down their asherim. Hey, destroy their buddies and their eggs. Oops, did I let that slip? Well, we're going to get there. Um, you will not bow to, down to any other god because here it comes. Right smack in the middle. Because Yahuwah, Yahuwah, Kana, huh, Shemi, or Shemo in this case, his, his name. Kana is his name. Jealous is how it's rendered in the English. Yahuwah Kana. So the name Yahuwah Kana is, is the uh, El Kana is another way to hear it. The, the jealous God. Don't bow down to any other God because Yahuwah Kana, Shamu, that's his name, he is an El Kana. He's jealous. Other side of the Atbash, lest you make a covenant. Another word, uh, Tikrit uh, Brit. With the inhabitants of the land, go astray after their gods and sacrifice to them. And they call you, and they you eat of their substance, eat of their bunnies and their eggs. And you take of their sons and their daughters and so forth and so on. And everybody goes astray after those fake gods. The covenant, the um, bracket that is open there and the bracket that's closed there is exactly what Josh would fail to do. Those fake gods were never expunged from the land. They're still out there today, folks. You can turn on any TV and you can see them. We're coming up on a time of the year when you're going to see them, and they're going to take the most important day, or so they say, in the history of mankind. The death of Jesus by uh, another name, actually, because uh, it wasn't uh, that name didn't exist for 16 centuries later. But they're going to say it, it, it's uh, going to be named for a pagan fertility goddess, right? Everybody knows it. Ashtar, Te, uh, Ishtar, uh, Oh, there's so many ways to pronounce it. Astarte, Ishtaroth, Ishtar, Easter. 
and also Diana and some other variations. But a lot of them have something to do with Easter, yeah. So let's take the most important time in human history, name it after a fake pagan fertility goddess, celebrate it with bunnies and eggs, and basically just rub his nose in it. Now that, as everybody knows, if you've heard me uh, in years past, is not something I haven't talked about before. But what I think is interesting, and what I want to make sure I point out this time around, is the Atbash within the Atbash. The big Atbash is, y'all almost blew it. You did this golden calf thing, and I damn near killed you. You deserved it. Moshe was able to, uh, well, talk him out of it. I know he knew the end from the beginning. He allowed Moshe to do what Moshe needed to do. And then he forgave them. But he had a plan, and you can see that, because he'd already told them what they were going to do, knowing that they were going to do it. So we get the closed brackets. Then they did it, as Yehua commanded Moshe. What's in the middle? Don't make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. It's a snare. It's paganism. Break down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars. I hate this crap. Because the L that you're supposed to serve is a jealous L. El Kanah. And what was the message of the... Well, that seems to be what it, we're, we're seeing writ large here. And right smack in the middle of this great big Atbash is El Kanah. The jealous L. Now, why is that important? Right, that's that's again, that's repetition. It's Old Testament. It's boring and it's wrong. It's never been more important, perhaps never more so than the time we're entering into right now, because paganism has not only reared its ugly head, its bunnies, its eggs, its dragon feet, all the other things. We are coming to a head, coming to a climax of literally biblical proportions. Again, I'm not going to claim to know the timing. What I do is say we can recognize the cycles. We're supposed to know the times and the seasons. And, folks, the times and the seasons are here. That is hard to ignore. And I, uh, like I also like to say, once you've seen it, you can no longer fail to see it. You can't unsee it, in other words. So, again, all of this is headed up with the, uh, here's what you're going to make. It is closed off with the, here's what they just made. Thus was finished all the work of the Mishkan, the tabernacle of the Ohel of Meeting, the Tent of Meeting. And the children of Israel, the Benai Israel, did and made according to all the Yahuwah commanded Moshe. Yep, so did they. It says it again in verse 16. Thus did Moses, according to all the Yahuwah commanded, so did he. Eighteen times. Then we have the erection of the tent. They spread the pieces out. They put them all together. They did this about about this same time of year. Over and over again throughout this, uh, they did this as Yahuwah commanded Moshe. Uh, they lighted the menorah as Yahuwah commanded Moshe. They burnt incense as Yahuwah commanded Moshe. Then the cloud covered the tent, and the glory of Yahuwah filled the Mishkan. First use of that word cloud there was in Genesis chapter 9. This is interesting, and I can't help but think there's a little bit of some uh, foreshadowing and a warning going on here. Yahuwah said at this point, after he had destroyed, sanded down mankind for the crime of of fascism? No, no, uh, Faustism? No, no, Faust? uh, Faustus? No. uh, Oh, I know, Tony Fauci, that's it. Same word, basically, having to do with fascism and Faustianism. And uh, Anyway... um, Basically, re-engineering the human species, saying, you know, God screwed it up. Uh, We can do better. We can destroy that immune system that has all this fearfully and wonderfully made stuff to protect from diseases. That hey, we're bioengineering anyway. We'll take those things over. We'll have maybe a Biden family helper to uh, to China. Then we'll release it. We'll kill a whole bunch of people, but that ain't the big deal. The big deal is what we're going to do afterwards. Yeah, part B of the bioweapon. We're going to get these people to allow themselves to be injected, destroy their immune systems. They're going to be dropping like fries. Hell, we'll kill millions. 
If we're good at it, billions. What were they doing? They were re-engineering humankind. Why was Moshe? Why was rather uh, Noah set apart? Well, he was perfect. He was tamim. He was the way he was supposed to be made in his generations. Hmm. He was fit for the purpose that Yah designed him. He was human. He was fully human. He hadn't been tainted. There are lots of ways of looking at that particular rendering of the verse. I tend to think that uh, one of the reasons why mankind was sanded down was because of all this half-breedism, mixing of uh, the clean and the unclean, uh, turning things upside down, uh, literally perverting them, destroying his design with something else, including mankind. And uh, uh, again, once you've seen that that's what's going on again, you can't unsee it. So, the word kana, I'm sorry, anan there, the cloud. The cloud. What was the cloud? Well, that is the place where Yah put his bow, his rainbow, right after that was all done. Genesis 9, verses 13 and 14. I'll set my bow in the anan, in the clouds. So, what does mankind do as it's destroying mankind, rewriting his genome, destroying his uh, well-designed, perfect for its intended purpose, ability to fight off diseases, the bioengineered diseases that the satanic hosts are wanting to kill him off with? They're going to pervert the rainbow symbol too. Going to turn it into something absolutely an abomination. He calls it that. He uses the word toeba. A man lying with a man is with a woman. That's the symbol of all of that. Now, there's a, there's a book, and I, I was given a copy of it here lately, um, by the, um, oh, let me think of it. Now I'm drawing a blank. Uh, the, the, the well-known um, Messianic rabbi. I'm having a Biden moment. <laughs> Jonathan Kahn. I could think of Cohen, but not Kahn. Jonathan Kahn. And uh, essentially his thesis is that the, the various fake gods, Molech, Baal, and of course Ishtar, are coming back. And he makes some interesting points having to do with things that happened in New York City and a lot of things that people may or may not remember and so forth. But um, there's a lot of um, really interesting parallels in there. Certainly a lot of the symbolism, uh, the rainbow in particular, have come back. And it's, um, again, once you've seen it, you can't deny that anymore. Is there a common thread here? You betcha there is. The cloud covered the tent. The glory of Yahuwah filled the Mishkan. You uh, so so much so that Moshe wasn't able to go in this time. I mean, I, he could remember back up on Mount Sinai, but this time it was filled, filled to capacity. So he had to stay outside for a while. And of course, then the portion and the the book ends by saying, whenever the Anan was taken up from over the Mishkan, they they journeyed on. But if it wasn't, they stayed. And the cloud, the Anan of Yahuwah, was upon the tabernacle by day, fire by night, in the sight of cold bait Israel, all the house of Israel, throughout all of their journeys. And all of that's interesting. It also leads me to a couple of other parallels. Now, this is the place where uh, I suspect a lot of people are going to say, well, I I hope that this is really interesting. And um, certainly there are those that are going to say, oh, no, I've been ignoring all the warnings up until now. I'm not about to take notice at this point. Well, um, I pray that all will have eyes to see and ears to hear. But there are some other interesting things going on this year as well. Let's let's talk about a few of them uh, because we have our own great big Atbash that surrounds this idea of Elkanah, the jealous El. This year, 
Now, this I just saw this the other day because we just got the uh, the sighting of the new moon, and I'm one of those that uh, in the uh, in the absence of what I would call a a definitive, undeniable proof of which calendar is his. I know we got all kinds of people that listen, and I, I don't like to be divisive because again, I, I don't see that we have an absolute ironclad proof like there is with so many other things, uh, like uh, you know who he is and what he did, and he didn't do away with his word, but. Um, is the um, is the calendar based on the moon? Is it based on the equinox? Is it based on some astronomical observations? Can we predict it years in advance? Or is it simply, as he says, um, let everything be confirmed in the mouths of two or three witnesses? And the sighting of the new moon is one of those things that can be confirmed by two or three witnesses. And at least for now, that's the way I tend to look at it. Well, anyway, the new moon was sighted just a few days back. And uh, it basically says here is, um, what, depending upon whether you think it's the new moon or the opposition moon or the conjunction or whatever the case may be when it comes to calculating these things, when the moon is truly at its most darkest in the center of that um, the cloud, the shadow, you can't see it. There's no way that two witnesses can, can come up with it unless it's two calculations maybe. But now it's been seen, and what it says is the countdown will put... The time of the uh, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the time of that first holy day of Passover or Pesach, coming up on um, Thursday night, remember it begins at sundown, into Friday, April 6th, and then the day of April 7th. So the countdown. Well, what's interesting is that same weekend is the day that the pagans will say is Ishtar Sun God Day. Let's have our Sun God Day services, the end of the 40 days of, of uh, weeping for Tammuz, for Lent, and all of that kind of stuff. Huh. So what struck me, and this is again kind of a second witness in my mind at least, is that um, the rabbis, the rabbinic calendar, the Hillel calendar, has the day associated, of course, with the conjunction, the new moon. Uh, the one that is astronomically calculated. So they will say that it's a Wednesday night into Thursday. Now what's ironic about that? is Wednesday into Thursday was actually the time when the very first Passover, the Pesach, uh, at which uh, Yahushua did the thing that uh, most of Christianity forgets, changes the dates and names it after a pagan goddess. Hmm. In other words, folks, it was not Good Friday, never was Good Friday. It was Wednesday uh, that he was um, put to death. And he was in the tomb before the sun went down on Wednesday. If you count it off and say he predicted, he prophesied that he would be in the in the tomb in the ground for three days and three nights. Well, you got Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, okay. And then you've got all day. That would be Thursday, Friday, Sabbath day. Three days, three nights. Yeah, exactly. He said that means he would have risen as he said he would, uh, would and did at the end of the Sabbath, as it was beginning to dawn on the seventh day of the week, says the gospel. As it was beginning to dawn, well, that would mean at sundown. By that time, he was already out of the tomb. Not sun god day at the sunrise service for Ishtar. Why is all this important? Well, because it, it turns out that this year, the day that the rabbis are looking at and saying is the calendar day is the same day as it actually was for what later became the way, the way, the truth, and the life. Now, the um, the actual um, day of Ishtar, as I mentioned, is, is that same weekend. And what strikes me as funny is some of us that uh, are keeping this sighted new moon now will say, okay, now this year in particular, it means that the, uh, the day of the um, the first day of unleavened bread, the time we'll have our, our Passover Pesach meal would be Thursday evening, heading into Friday. 
uh, a.k.a. a good Friday. Now, there's no way to get three days and three nights in here and have him out of the uh, tomb before a sun god day, Ishtar uh, sunrise services. But still, what struck me about this is almost like uh, those of us that are trying to understand uh, a first century perspective take a, a little bit from the rabbis. They got part of it right. They kept the Torah. Great. Uh, Christianity realized the Mashiach when he came, but they changed the day, changed the time. They didn't recognize uh, who he really was because they said he did away with the law. But at least for a long time, they had it right. So you have two houses. Huh, that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Two whoring wives, two houses, two sticks. And both of them have elements of the truth, and both of them have a lot wrong. And this year, it struck me that the day that the... Um, the sighted new moon says that first day of Pesach, of unleavened bread, will be splits the difference. And it would end up being on Good Friday, ironically. So um, my point here is, uh, going through all of this, is not to say that it's somehow magically prophetic, although it might be, I'm not making that claim. It's not about right or wrong either, it's just about discernment. Because what strikes me about this is it's an opportunity this year for those of us that uh, don't accept either the rabbinic calendar or the um, the paganized calendar of Sun God Day to say, look, um, it's close but no cigar. And here are some differences. And here's what happened when he really um, was put in the tomb uh, on that Wednesday evening and so forth. So uh, that, that part itself, that's not new either. And... Um, but when you put it all together, there are some interesting confluences this year. Now, that leads me to do something else that I have done before. And when I thought about it, I thought, nah, you know, I don't, I don't need to do that this year. And I basically, I believe I was kind of set back. No, uh, you will do it this year. So, okay, um, I will. We'll talk about Ezekiel chapter 8 and 9. And uh, let's turn there. Um, again, some of you know this. It's a... Um, it's one of those things, once you see it, you can't unsee it again. I won't tell you the whole story. I would encourage people to read all of chapter 8 and 9, because, again, I have done it uh, many, many times. But it starts like this. The prophet Ezekiel is told, hey, son of man, I want you to look at some things. came to pass in the sixth year, sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, I was uh, sitting in my house, and there was a likeness. And he says, son of man, you see the abominations they're doing in here? Look at all this stuff. Um, to make me go far away from my sanctuary, my own sanctuary. They're driving me out of the place that I was, at least once upon a time, invited to dwell. Turn. You're going to see even greater abominations. So he looks, there's a hole in the wall. He looks through the wall, and I dug in there, and he says, Look and see the wicked abominations which they're doing in there. All kinds of creeping things, abominable beasts, all of the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. Now remember, the house of Israel was the first of the two whoring wives to go into exile to be banished. And um, literally, the ten lost tribes are still in exile. And as I've uh, noted before, I tend to think if you follow the history, you can see that the ten lost tribes became the um, the pagan, what, what I will refer to, and I believe we're seeing it right here, as the whore church. Things that are abomination to him. All of these idols of the whore church. Well, what would that be that we would see today? Well, I'll just let the uh, the listener use your imagination, or you don't have to. Uh, flip on a TV on Ishtar Sun God Day. You'll see them. Seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel stood, and um, basically they were they were all they had their little incense things, and they were they were shaking them around. Son of man, have you seen what these elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols, they see. They say, Yahuwah can't see us. Uh, Yahuwah has forsaken the land. 
Oh, then he says, wait a second, son of man, turn around. You'll see even greater abominations, things that they're doing. Now listen to this one and see if it doesn't ring a bell, because we're seeing it right now. We're coming to the end of this 40 days of weeping for Tammuz. Uh, So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the house of Yahuwah. To my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Now you know all the, um, well you maybe know the pagan uh, story here, but there's Tammuz and there's all kinds of incest going on, mother and son. And uh, the boar that killed the sun and all kinds of stuff. So they're going to kill the boar, have themselves a nice Ishtar sun god day ham. And um, they spend 40 days, basically, up front of this. You could call it Lent, if you like, weeping for Tammuz. He said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again. You'll see even greater abominations than that. So then he brought me into the inner court of Yahuwah's house. And there, at the door of the temple between the porch and the altar, a whole bunch of men were sitting, 25 of them, as a matter of fact, with their backs toward the temple of Yahuwah and their faces towards the east, towards the sunrise. They were there for the sunrise service, worshiping the sun as it rose towards the east. And he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is this a trivial thing to do to the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with Hamas, And they have now returned, they've made Teshuvah, but in the wrong direction, it seems, to provoke me to anger. Indeed, they put the branch to their nose. So, you know what? I'm going to act in fury, he says. I'm not going to pity him, Even though they cry in my ears with a loud voice. Oh, Jesus, save us. Oh, Lord, save us. You can imagine, folks, even though they cry in my ear with a loud voice, I'm not going to hear him. All right, it then gets a little bit more blunt even from that. This is a story that, uh, um, if you've heard me do it before, I, I refer to it as the angel with the inkhorn story, uh, among other things. Now, he, he called out in my hearing with a loud voice, and he said, Hey, let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in their hand. Then there are six men came from the direction of the upper gate, and one of them, among them was clothed with linen. He had a rider's inkhorn at his side. They went in, they stood beside the bronze altar. The glory of the Elohim of Israel had gone up from the cherub, where it had been, to the threshold of the temple. He called to the man clothed in linen with the writer's inkhorn on his side, and, and Yahuwah said to him the following, Go through the midst of the city. Now, as I, as I read this, folks, I encourage people, listen and think about the implications. And um, again, once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. Go through the midst of the city of Jerusalem. Put a mark. A mark. Oh, is this a mark of the beast? No, no, this is the opposite. This is his mark. Put that mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. Now, let me pause there for a second. Because I have said before, as Scripture says it, by the way, it's not me just saying it, you can read it. Um, Do not keep silent. In other words, we are called to speak up. To be witnesses for him. To be the watchman on the wall. You see the sword coming upon the land? The watchman's supposed to blow that shofar, let people know about it. Now, having done that, he can't change their minds, he can't make them listen. So their blood is on their own heads thereafter. But, understand, it is important. I'm going to suggest it's deadly important that those of us who know, who have eyes to see... Not only blow the shofar, but we sigh and cry at the abominations. That's why I get so bent out of shape about renaming the most important day in human history after a pagan, blankety-blanking, fertility sun goddess. And celebrating it with bunnies and eggs. Hey, they're on sale on Monday morning at Walmart. Bring them home. Bring that abomination into your house, right? Put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done therein. 
And he said, within my hearing, go, talking to these other men, right, the ones with the destroying weapons, go throughout the city and kill. Do not let your eye spare, nor have any pity. Utterly slay. Ready for this? How's this for your loving, warm, fuzzy Jesus? Oh, well, this is the Old Testament, right? Um, No, folks, especially if you understand that he's talking about Ishtar Sun God Day, the things that are now being repeated. I can't help but think this ought to resonate, right? The Atbash is still open. The closing bracket is yet to come. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women. But do not come near anyone on whom is the mark, my mark. Oh, yeah, and guess what? Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. And he said to them, Defile the temple. Fill the courts with the slain. Go out. And they went out and they killed in the city. So it was while they were killing him, I was left alone. I fell on my face and I cried out and I said, Oh, Yahuwah Eloheka, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? And then he said to me, The Torahlessness, the iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah. Two houses, folks. Both whoring wives, both whoring kingdoms. Both the whore church and the whore synagogue. Two houses, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, is exceedingly great. And the land is full of bloodshed. Hmm. Is that still true? And the city is full of perversity. Which city? Pick a city! Washington, District of Criminals, San Francisco, New York, Chicago, you know, you got the idea. Pick a city. For they say, Yahuwah has forsaken the land, and he doesn't see. Hell, they say nowadays, he doesn't even exist. He's not allowed to see. We don't let him in Washington, for crying out loud. He's not even allowed to cross the bridge, or the roads, or the the outer uh, beltway. And as for me also, my eye will neither spare, nor will I have pity, but I will recompense their deeds on their own head. Just about that time, it says, the man clothed with linen, the one though at the inkhorn at his side, returned, he reported back, and he said, I have done as you commanded me. Uh, Close bracket. Okay, so there's the intro. Yes, uh, again, we've heard this before. Uh, Why is this important this year? I'm going to suggest for several reasons. Uh, One, it's not like all of this hasn't been written, again, for um, well over two centuries at this point. Uh, Not two centuries, two millennia. We've had uh, 2,000 years to, uh, to get the idea. But it's interesting, isn't it, that this year the dates are all kind of coincident. Uh, the um, the pagan church date is um, is coming up this same weekend. The um, the whore synagogue date is is coming up. They're close. They're close enough that at least iron can sharpen iron. There can be some discussion. The um, those with a um, a sided new moon understanding, interestingly, are splitting the difference. We of course have the Atbash, and I will suggest that uh, at least for me, because this first year I've personally seen this Atbash. This actually several of them in this context. Uh, it really ought to stand out and make a difference because we're talking about Elkanah, and and it inclines me to ask the question: He is a jealous guy. There was a line from Jefferson I saw in the last week or so reminded me about it. Uh, it's one that I've liked. He said, you know what, I fear for my, I, I tremble, as a matter of fact, for my country when I remember that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. This is Jefferson. Some of them will say he was a, um, uh, a deist, uh, that Jefferson wasn't a great Christian. Well, you know what, folks? 
And they might say that is about a lot of us who have an understanding of what Scripture says. No doubt about it, Jefferson was a student of Scripture and a lot of other things as well. Indeed, he said, I tremble for my country when I remember that God is just and his justice cannot sleep forever. He wrote that 200 years ago. Hmm. What else? Well, we certainly got no, no shortage of warnings uh, this year. There are several warnings. Uh, warnings on every front. We've got the World War III warnings, the nuke warnings. We have the uh, escalation in Syria and Iran. Now warnings. We have the meltdown of the banking system, the destruction of the fiat buck. Uh, you name it, if there is a warning to be had, it's out there. Oh, yeah, and how about all the paganism, the transgenderism, the um, people dropping dead like flies for having destroyed their immune systems and allowing uh, the Fauci's and the, uh, the perverts of the world to destroy not only their children, make them sterile, but to destroy their ability, well, to even live, much less reproduce. Let's talk about a couple of other things from Scripture that ought to at least also kind of help us set the stage. There's one from um, the Haftorah for this week. It's probably one of the, well, it's actually not the Haftorah. The Haftorah is from chapter 7. It's the closing bracket. Here's the opening bracket. Uh, 1 Kings 6, and this is advice to Shlomo coming from, uh, guess who, concerning the temple which you're building, if, he says, you walk in my statutes, walk in my statutes, and notice the word im, if, in there, if you walk in my statutes, hmm, there's one of those Hebrew words that means law, right? Statutes, judgments, and commandments. Execute my judgments and keep, shamar, that's the root word there, all of my commandments and then walk in them, then I will perform my word with you which I spoke to your father David. So this is going to be a place, again, where his Ruach will be. Now, what do we believe today? What are we told today? Well, let's talk. take a, a quick pass through that. I know what folks are thinking, uh, because we've all heard it, right? Uh, how about this one from Romans? Let's go to Romans chapter 7. Um, and I want to get to the part where uh, it talks about the temple. Don't you know about the temple? But um, how about this? This is the beginning of chapter 7. I think it's an interesting um, place to start for those that are saying, oh, I don't need to, to study uh, the law anymore. Uh, the, the parts that matter, the only parts that matter, they're written on my heart. Oh, really? Yeah, that, the temple is within me. Oh, okay, well, let's see what it says here in actual print. Uh, do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the Torah, huh? Isn't this funny? You don't very often hear people that, that will... Uh, talk about whether Paul knew the Torah or not, quoting this one. But here he is saying, I'm talking to those people who actually know the written Torah. Hmm. I'm speaking to those who know the Torah, the law, but no, that word there is not rendered properly. It really was Torah that Paul was thinking about, and I believe that's clear from the context. If you can disagree, then make your best case. Anyway, that the Torah, the law, has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Don't you know that? Then he talks about this. Now, a lot of folks will focus on this. Don't you know that a woman who has a living husband is bound by the Torah to her husband as long as he lives? But if the husband is is died, then she is released from the Torah of her husband. She is released from the understanding, from her covenant to her husband, by the fact that he's dead. Now, he is not talking about the fact that there's another way, too. That man can send her out, give her a sephra caratuta, bear her guilt, and then... Uh, she can also, as Torah says, she can go find a new husband. So they will take this out of context to make a whole different point and then ignore the fact that, wait, Paul says, I'm just talking to those people who know the Torah to begin with. Okay, so uh, there's some stuff here written about the husband. But uh, look, uh, you have become dead to the nomos. Now this time, is he talking about the Torah of man or the Torah of God? The instruction, the law, 
Huh. As long as the heavens and the earth exist, says the Mashiach, yod heh vav the Torah made flesh, the salvation of Yah, well, it still exists. So I don't think Paul is saying it's done away with. If anybody claims that, uh, then I suspect you'd have a problem with him, and he would probably have a problem with that understanding. But anyway, um, he is saying that there is a um, there is an understanding here. And this is talking about the rebirth aspect. What should we say then, though? Um, should um, Is the law sin? Well, hell no. Certainly not. On the contrary, I wouldn't have known sin except through the teaching from the Torah. I wouldn't have known what covetousness was unless the Torah had said, you shall not covet. Okay, Because I was alive once without the Torah, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. I died. Period. Huh. So, in other words, uh, what he's really saying is there is more to it. And, and that's what he has been saying consistently. The trouble is, people try to say, no, there's less to it. It's done away with. And that's not what he's claiming at all. Okay, uh, sin came, and um, the commandment which was to bring life, and instead it ended up killing me. It deceived me. I was deceived. Don't you know that what I will to do, um, that I don't necessarily practice, but that which I hate, sometimes I end up doing. Hmm, I guess that's kind of a, a nice statement of human nature. I see another uh, law written in my members, warring against the law that's in my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Notice some of those words might be nomos, but only at least one, only, uh, one of them might be Torah. There's a lot of things he's talking about that masquerade as law, in other words, that aren't. Okay. Um, Where we're headed here is the next chapter with all of this as a kind of an understanding. All things work together for good for those who love Elohim, to those who are called according to his purpose. Is it becoming clear? I hope. And I'll say this again. I've said it so many times. We, We have inherited lies from our fathers, things wherein there's no truth. No prophet. Huh. We have been told that Jesus came and he died so that he could do away with his own written word. Nail it to the cross. Twisted all of it. He himself said in his very first public address, I'm not going to do that until all is fulfilled. Well, is he coming back? Well, he hadn't come back yet. At least that's what most of us would agree. Uh, Is Damascus still a city? Uh, Is uh, there still heaven and earth? Yeah. All right, I will contend if you can find anything in the Scripture that has not yet been fulfilled, then um, it isn't all done. Therefore, the Torah has not been done away with. Not only that, not even one yod or tittle has been done away with. So if you read somebody like Paul explaining things that seem pretty deep, and as Kepha, Peter said, they're often twisted, and it looks like he's saying the law is done away with, you're reading it wrong, or somebody translated it wrong, because guess who's not wrong? If it's Scripture, it's the creator of the universe and the author of that who is not wrong. He does not contradict himself. So find another understanding. It's not hard. Once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. Well, then let's go to the other place that there's a lot of stuff that gets twisted in. And um, I'm going to skip over. I'm going to come back to um, to to some of the stuff from Corinthians. Ah, No, I think we'll do it in the other order. This is not how I had it in my notes, but I'm going to do it this way this time. Uh, Let's go to 1 Corinthians 3. Here we go. Do you not know, it says, that you are the temple of Elohim, and that the Ruach Elohim dwells in you? 
That's kind of a nice thing, isn't it? Remember, Betzalel, he had the Ruach Elohim. We're told explicitly that. Where did he get it? Yeah, in that first part of the Atbash is when it's told to us. And he used this Ruach Elohim to do all of the things that were what? They were associated with building the physical temple on earth so that the Anan, the cloud, the presence of yod heh vav He might dwell among them and guide them for all of this time in the wilderness. The closing Atbash, after they had done it, how did they do it? Um, according to all that he had said, as Moshe commanded, so they did. There's an element of obedience there. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Do you not know that you are the temple of Elohim and that the Ruach Elohim dwells in you? Here's how Paul puts it then in Corinthians. So, if anyone defiles the temple of Elohim, Elohim will destroy him. For the temple of Elohim is holy, which temple you are. Back to uh, Ishtar Sun God Day and the warning from Ezekiel. Destroy everyone, all those people upon whom is not the mark. Who gets the mark? Those who sigh and cry at the abominations that are being done where? In the city, especially right there. Where is he going to begin? Begin in my temple. In my temple. The temple which Paul says you are. And now, isn't it funny? People say, well, I'm the, my, I'm the temple of the, of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Ghost dwells in me. But I got my bunnies and my eggs and my Ishtar sun. God damn, I got all this wonderful paganism and I love it. And I'm going to celebrate with my Easter ham. And don't you dare tell me different. Oh, really? Okay. But once you see it, you can't unsee it. Hmm. Could it be that this year there really is a difference? I don't know. I suspect that if you ever, folks, are thinking about saying, you know, maybe we ought to start coming out of her, leaving the paganism behind, destroying those temples, those fake god things, those altars, those asherim, those bunny and egg um, goddesses, uh, this would probably be a pretty good time. Don't you know that you're the temple of Elohim? In uh, 2 Corinthians, second letter to the same people, Shaul elaborates a bit more. This is chapter 6. Now behold, now he says, is the accepted time. Now is the day of Yahshua, the salvation of Yah. Salvation. Same word, isn't that interesting? The name that he came to earth, this is the day of of that name. Are we coming up on the day when when we celebrate what that um, salvation of Yah did so that we don't have to? Hmm. Oh, Corinthians, we've spoken openly to you, our hearts wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you are by your own affections. What, for your bunnies and your eggs? Now, in return for the same, uh, I speak to children. I'm speaking like your children, in other words. Um, You need to be open. Here comes the advice that is tough, because can't we all just get along? Hey, we all serve the same God, or do we? Do we all believe that Jesus, and and that's what's really the salvific issue? Or if we can't get the name right, and we worship another God who did away with his own Torah, and died on the wrong day for the wrong purposes, and then uh, did abominations, and we've renamed it after a pagan goddess anyway? Are we really convinced we're really worshiping the same God? Or is he going to have to show us differently? Like with some mark for those that sigh and cry at the abominations that are being celebrated by those who, arguably, as he put it, never knew I never knew you. You obviously never knew me. Here's how Paul puts it. This is First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, chapter six, verse fourteen. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now I hear people saying this about oh, this has got to do with marriage. Well, among other things, yeah. For what fellowship has righteousness, Torah obedience, in other words? The root word in the Hebrew here has to do with zadikness. The zadik is the person who studies Torah, who walks in obedience to his instruction. 
Hmm. So what fellowship has Torah obedience with lawlessness? Uh-oh. Uh, what communion has light with darkness? What accord has the Mashiach with Belial or Baal by various other related names? Or maybe Ishtar, Easter. Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Do you see why that might be just a little bit more important this year as it's getting more and more impossible to say, uh, what fellowship do we have with people who want to kill kids? What fellowship do we have with people who want to literally destroy humankind and turn their genome into something that Noah had and that those who died in the flood obviously didn't have? Those who basically are worshipping at the altar of Fauci and Faustus and fascists don't understand? Can we have any fellowship with them? I, I would suspect the answer is an unequivocal no. And what agreement has the temple of Elohim with idols? Oh, wait a minute. Now there he just kind of nails it right to the, to the cross, I guess you could say, doesn't he? What agreement has the temple of Elohim with idols? This is the same guy who just finished saying, hey, that's, you, that's you, right? you got all these Christians who will say, I'm the temple of the living God. He dwells in my heart. But I don't keep his days. I don't keep his moedim. I don't eat what he says is food. I don't, eat, I don't do what he says to do. As far as I'm concerned, he can go to hell, or at least uh, he can take my bunnies and eggs and hang them on his Christmas tree. Are we worshiping the same God? I can't see it when you're having fellowship with idols. What agreement does the temple of Elohim have with idols? For you, here he says it again, you are the temple of the living God. Are you or not? What does Ezekiel say? Well, he told me, watch for those, he told the angel rather. He told the angel, yep, slay everyone who does not have my mark and begin where? At the temple of the living God. No, at the uh, at my sanctuary, which is no longer mine. Hmm. Is there a parallel there? For you are the temple of the living Elohim. As Yahuwah has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. He said things like that several times. That quotes from the second chapter of Leviticus. Therefore... Now, this one you probably heard me quote. I like this verse. Uh, and it's repeated a number of times, too. It comes in... Um, uh, Jeremiah, and it comes again in Revelation in a slightly different form. Come out from among them and be separate, says Yahuwah. Do not touch what is unclean. Touch not the unclean things, the old King James, right? And I will receive you. I will be a father to you. And you shall be my sons and daughters, says Yahuwah Eloheinu. Okay, so let's be clean, is what he goes on to say. Open your hearts and so forth. Let's turn to one of those problematic places then, because when you put all of this together and ask where we are and what does this mean for this year, I'm going to suggest uh, it's, time to, um, it's time to take off the gloves and, and look in the mirror and ask some pretty hard questions. Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. He's going to talk about the, the first Mishkan here and the first tabernacle and had, had all these things, the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid with gold. Um, and what did the uh, Kohen Gadol, first it was Aaron, later it was those that followed in his um, footsteps, I guess you could say, 
the high priest, he went alone once a year into the place that was called the Kadesh Kodeshim, the Holy of Holies, not without blood, which he offered both for himself and for the sins of the people. Now, here's the part that gets left out when folks read this. It's vital, I will suggest, and it's right smack out of Torah. Paul was a consummate Torah scholar, let's not forget. He offered for himself and for the sins of the people, here we go, committed in ignorance. What? Is that important? Absolutely. Because the Ruach HaKodesh indicating this, the way to the Holy of Holies, the Kadesh Kodeshim, was not yet made manifest while that first tabernacle was still standing. What's the claim here? Basically what he's saying is, hey, we got this better one now, built not with hands. And we're going to get there in just a minute. But um, it was built instead with, um, with, with Ruach, spirit. So we're going to spiritualize this idea of the temple. Now, people have no problem spiritualizing the temple, as I've been saying uh, all through this. Oh, yeah, he, he dwells in me. The problem is we pick and choose, it seems, or at least the whole church picks and choose um, from the stuff they like and the stuff they, they don't want to talk about, like the paganism, the idolatry, all of those things that make that holy temple a, a whorehouse instead of a place for his ruach to dwell, his cloud, his anon to fill up. Wasn't yet made manifest. It was symbolic for the present time, says the author here of Hebrews, a minor might not have been Paul, in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect when it comes to the conscious, uh, concerned only with food and drinks, various washings and ordinances imposed up until the time of reformation. Oh, see, this is when he did away with the law. No, he just revealed, made fulfilled, showed where it was leading, right? Because the Mashiach is the goal of the Torah for all who believe. And I quoted that a bit more correctly than some of the English renderings that use the word end. End can mean goal, but not to uh, most English speakers who don't read his book. But Mashiach came as the Kohen Gadol of the good things to come, of the greater and more perfect Mishkan, tabernacle, not made with hands, uh, that is, not the one of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place, the Kadesh Kodeshim, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, I, uh, I think this is a really interesting statement, and it's one of those things, again, that has been twisted, and uh, to the point where, uh, as I read through this, I can see the, the truth and the lie, and honestly... You don't see the truth without an understanding of his Torah. And by the way, what did he just say? We're talking about sins committed in ignorance here, that the high priest went into that place once a year for the people. Again, sins committed in ignorance. Not with the blood of of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered once for all. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, well then, how much more so shall the blood of the Mashiach, the one true son of Elohim, the risen um, Torah-made flesh, how much more will he who through the eternal Ruach offered himself without spot to Elohim, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, what's funny, folks? See, you've been told this is Torah, that he's cleansing us from wrong. 
It's all the crap that we've told, we've been told is the law, but isn't. Bunnies and eggs and goats and bulls. And how about Christmas trees? And um, Ishtar Sun God Day? And, and sacrificing children to Molech and saying that's the sacrament that the Lord God of the District of Criminals wants you to remember. And if you don't like it, we may take your kids. We'll certainly bust down your door and steal your house because you had got, you better serve uh, the mammon of this world. How far? Talk about dead works. What is he really supposed to be cleansing us from? It's not his own word. That's the point. It's the crap that we've been told. Well, when Big Brother says jump, you said you say how high? Forget the God of the Bible. He can't protect you from us. You disarmed little slave, you. I, I cannot tell you how angry it makes me, and I'll, I'll admit it. When I hear people that will basically turn his word on his head and say, oh, you, you can't trust in the works of the law while they trust in the works of a law that they admit has been done away with by the police state. I want my my license to be married. Isn't that funny? You think that's going to protect you when they don't even honor their word about, oh, I don't know, elections, and no warrant shall issue, and shall not be infringed, and the right of the people to uh, well, be free in their persons. You name it, folks. It don't apply anymore. We, have, we, we live in a land where people who disobey the law of God... We'll say, but when it comes to the law of man, that's what matters. Oh, yeah. When he says jump, I'll say how high. Romans 13, it's kind of like the only one of the Ten Commandments that still matters is when Big Brother says jump, you say how high. For this reason, back to Paul here, or back to the author of Hebrews, he is the mediator of the renewed covenant by means of his death for the redemption of the transgressions of the first covenant. The first covenant, that covenant, by the way, which has never been done away with, Yah's covenants do not expire. We may not keep them. He may try to come back and help us out. He may allow us to build something with that uh, great big Atbosh that uh, he knew before and he knows after what we need to do to get ourselves cleaned up. But he didn't do away with it. The renewed covenant. That those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. According to the Torah, almost all things, almost, are purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Let's get to the uh, chapter 10 part here, where we're going to see how some of this fits together. And notice, it doesn't fit together right unless you read it in context and understand what the Torah says concerning unintentional sins. Now, let me say it again real briefly. We can go through this, and I have gone through it, and I I hope people will, uh, if they need to, go back and, and review it. But essentially, you go through the Torah, there are all kinds of things that are called unintentional sins. If the people sin unintentionally, here's a here's a thing that you do as a result. If a ruler, a prince, if he sins unintentionally, If a Kohen, he sins unintentionally. Here's what you do. But it's always unintentional. Now, there are some things that are transgressions against your neighbor, your brother, where you steal something, well, you make it good. Not only do you make it good, you add extra to it, at least uh, another fifth part. Uh, Sometimes, if it's an animal, it's uh, four or five times. you make restitution. Well, not in the whore uh, church and the, uh, the modern world that says, no, no. We're going to send them to uh, Advanced Crime uh, University uh, there in um, Sing Sing. It's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. No. Okay, there's a lot of stuff in the chapter here that um, make the point. For the Torah, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of those things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. Because if that was the case, hey, wouldn't there not be any need for them anymore? 
That makes sense, doesn't it? If you were cleansed once and done, then why keep doing it? Unless, as Paul's already pointed out, unless it was unintentional sins, and you were cleansed of the unintentional sin, well, once you have sinned unintentionally, you can't very well say, hey, I didn't know any better, when you just, in fact, did it and got forgiven for it and cleansed of it. It's kind of silly to say, I didn't know, unless you're just really stupid. Uh, I don't think this is addressed to the really stupid. He's talking about those people who don't know the instruction and those who do. Those who know, once they realize, say, oh, okay, there's no more remission of sin. I can't do the same thing I just did and claim I didn't know anymore. Now can I? Because they would have been uh, no longer offered. Um, Once the worshipers uh, purified, they'd have had no more need, no more consciousness of sin because, hey, I I didn't know it before. Now I know it. So it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Uh, He quotes in here um, Psalm 40. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O Elohim. So we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Yeshua HaMashiach once for all. Once for all. And every Kohen stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Remember, these are for unintentional sins. New people make uh, the same mistakes as people once did, but you can't claim, once you have been cleansed, for doing something which you didn't know any better, that you still don't know any better. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of Elohim, from that time waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, one, he has perfected forever those who are being set apart, sanctified, made clean. Now, here he's going to turn, and I'll, uh, I'll turn if necessary too, to uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, the uh, renewed covenant. The Ruach also witnesses to those. Because he has said this before. This is the covenant that I will make with them after these days, says yod vav I will put my Torah into their hearts, and into their minds will I write them. And again, that's Jeremiah 31. And I'll, I'll make note of the whole thing here. Paul's going to quote part of it, but there are some elements of it that I think are vital to understand. Now he says, where there is remission of these sins, unintentional sins, there is no longer an offering for what? For unintentional sins, and I have a note in my in my scripture that was was clear to me at one time, and I think it's um, uh, it's it's a little bit nerdy. It's got to do with physics and with uh, um, convolution integrals and negative time and all kinds of things that you see in the math, and that um, people have been asked and answered and, and confused about for years. How is it that David knew the Mashiach? Right? He wrote a whole bunch of things, obviously having to do with the Mashiach. Well, he had promises. Was, was David cleansed? I think David was probably the greatest um, teshuva maker of all time. This was the guy who was after Yah's own heart. Uh, when he was told, you are the man, he didn't say, no, I, I'm not. He got on his face and said, you betcha I am. And I've learned. That's teshuva, folks. But... Uh, does he also seem to have some understanding? You bet. Uh, in other words, does the Mashiach, even though he came after David in time, cleanse David as well? Yeah. So there are nerdy ways and there are um, theological ways of making the case, but basically, once for all, 
does pretty well cover it. The four-time, after-time, that's part of the reason why I find these at-bashim, um, these, these things that are in Scripture that have open and closed brackets, sometimes they are separated in time before and after an event, but ultimately they're setting aside something which is what? The same yesterday and today and forever. Paul puts it this way. Let's let's summarize where he's going in in all this chapter. Because if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Do you get it? The uh, translators here tended to try to um, uh, leave out some important understanding, and that's got to do with context. Paul understands that the Torah, almost universally almost universally, talks about unintentional sins. And there's basically one major sin that's not unintentional. What is it? Rebellion. Rebellion to who? Well, with a capital W. To him. What is the sacrifice for rebellion to him? Same as it was for Adam. He ain't changed. The same as he knew the end from the beginning. Oh yeah, it's that one sacrifice for all, independent of time, that was made that one time for all, and yep, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, because it's no longer unintentional, and one sacrifice for the intentional sin of rebellion, once you've been redeemed from rebellion, you go back and rebel again, you might even go so far as to say, is that a um, blasphemy of the Ruach? Right? I'm, I'm not going to try to go into all kinds of detail on a whole bunch of things other than to say, you know what, my, my take would be, once you understand the truth, try to walk in obedience. It really isn't that hard. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name, cast out demons in your name and so forth, and, and do all these great works in your name? What will he say? Depart from me, you who are workers of iniquity, Torahlessness. I never knew you. It's not hard. It's not difficult to see. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. I think that's part of the reason why I like to say, um, he's right. You can no longer claim that I was uh, ignorant and committed this rebellion unintentionally for the 37th time. Hmm. Okay. Let's go back and look at Jeremiah 31. Now, the reason why I think this is important is because people will mistranslate this. Uh, It's a renewed covenant. The same word, Brit, can be used in either case here. But it does say this, okay? Verse 30, um, 31, I like to remember it because 31, 31 is kind of easy to remember, right? Behold, the days are coming, says Yahuwah, when I will make a new covenant, a new covenant, a renewed covenant, a Brit Chadashah, with the, well, listen to this, two houses, two whoring wives, two sticks, two kingdoms, northern and southern, Ahola, Aholaba, with the house of Israel, and, 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 with the house of Judah. Now, not, he says, according to the covenant that I made with their fathers and the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Mitraim, Egypt, uh, my covenant, my Brit, Briti, which they broke. They broke it. Even though I was a husband to them, says Yahuwah. This is idolatry. This is adultery. That's a covenant that uh, is pretty serious. And you remember, it carries a death penalty. This is the covenant that I will make with them uh, and the house of Israel after those days, says Yahuwah. The house of Israel, the whore, the whore church. This is the covenant I'll make after those days, says Yahuwah. I will put my Torah in their minds, and that is the word in the original, Torah, and I will write it on their levavot, their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Cool. 
Here's the question. Has that happened? Is it a done deal? I've had people tell me, oh, the Torah's written on my heart, but I don't keep his Sun God Day. I, I know I keep Sun God Day in preference, right? It's written on my heart, but I don't do any of this stuff. I like the way Yeshua puts it. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I say? Well, no more, says the prophet here, writing in the words in red, no more shall every man need to teach his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, no, Yahuwah. Notice it says, know the Lord, in the uh, mistranslation in English. No, it's not know, know the Lord. They already know Baal. They know Ishtar. They know Ashtaroth. They know Molech. Do they know yod heh I think that's an open question. Know Yahuwah. For they shall all know me, he says, from the least of them to the greatest. Look at the world today, folks. All? They all know me? Does that mean the people in San Francisco, New York, Chicago, the swamp, Madison Avenue, Rodeo Drive in Hollywood? Do they all know him? Hell, is there one of them? Maybe one somewhere. I doubt there's ten in any of them combined. Do they know him? They'll all know me, he says, from the least of them to the greatest. You know what, folks? I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest in the average Sun God Day whore church that's getting ready to celebrate Ishtar Sun God Day, have some bunnies and some eggs and an Ishtar ham, I doubt there's one that actually knows him. I'd be surprised. I guarantee you there's not ten. There's certainly not a minion. But I would be surprised if there's even one that knows him. And if they really knew him, they would not be... Um, what fellowship has light with darkness? Yeah, do, do we see that there's a pattern here? They'll all know me, he says. Well, I will contend that's kind of a proof text. Um, we're not there yet. Whatever this is talking about, we ain't anywhere close to that. Says Yahuwah, because I will forgive their Torahlessness, and their sin will I remember no more. And that takes me back to this convolution integral and how he gets rid of time and cleanses things past uh, even before they happened. Uh, but that's, again, that's beyond the discussion of, uh, of the math here. Uh, nevertheless, somehow or other he manages to do something that most of us have some trouble wrapping our heads around, right? How's that? Because uh, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of Elohim. No doubt about it. Can we walk in obedience, though? Well, once we have received that knowledge, once we have been cleansed, then we should. And we need to. And we can. And let's not forget the, uh, the concept here, too, of um, what it is that we're supposed to remember. Right? The, the idea that um, what it's back in Corinthians. Let me read it. I don't want to misquote it even at all in this place. Here we go. That bookmark. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has Torah obedience with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has the Mashiach with Baal or Belial? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of Elohim with idols? Remember, began at my sanctuary, he says, as he cleansed them from the things that, once you see it, you can't unsee it, are every bit associated with Ishtar Sun God Day, bunnies and eggs and fertility sacrifices, dying eggs and the blood of children. What a wonderful, quaint little pagan custom. For you are the temple of the living Elohim. Come out from among them and be separate, says Yahuwah. Do not touch the unclean things. Stay clear of the bunnies and eggs. Don't go to Walmart and get yourself some chocolate bunnies on Monday afterwards and think, I'm doing a favor to God. And I will cleanse you. I will receive you. 
Because if we willfully sin after having received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Okay, so let's let's put it all together and see, you know, what is this saying and, and why is it that I'm suggesting uh, this is a really important year? Well, let me put it as kindly and as bluntly as I can. I'm going to suggest that when I look at the world and I say, uh, looks like we've got a nuclear holocaust coming. I've uh, frequently quoted uh, Deuteronomy chapters 28, verses 60 and 61 that has to do with what looks to me like bioweapons, right? Um, if you walk in rebellion to me, I will, um, if, you, if you walk in obedience, I'll put none of the diseases on you to put on Egypt. But on the other hand, if you walk in rebellion, oh, you're going to see those diseases, the things that scare you know what out of, out of the people in Mitzrayim. But guess what? There's going to be others. Thank you, Fauci. Let's go, Brandon. Other bioweapons that aren't even written in the book. That ought to say something. So what am I suggesting? We are coming up on a time when there has never been a closer, distinguishable, discernible difference, time-wise and in terms of the times and the seasons, and in terms of this great big atbash about I am El Kanah, a jealous Elohim, it's never been more clear. Now, it may be that we're going to get even more clear next year or the year after. I don't claim to know that. But I do know that there's no excuse at this point. That's what Yeshua says a lot. They are without excuse. How much more clear can it be than the example of Ezekiel chapters 8 and 9? So let me just um, let me just cut to the chase. Um, this this upcoming Ishtar Sun God Day, I'd say stay away from any so-called church, any whore church that advertises Easter by the name of a pagan fertility goddess. That the idiot running the thing ought to know better. <gasps> Gee, Mark, are you being so unkind to these followers of Jesus? You betcha. Because what fellowship do we have with people who either, at best, are blithering idiots, or at worst, know better, and are still choosing to not only walk in rebellion, but teach others to do so? And use a name which they either know or ought to know, is of a pagan fertility goddess, and they take the name of yod heh vav in vain, take his son and rub his nose in the dirt. Oh, let's worship with bunnies and eggs and have our Ishtar ham. Good grief. So, yeah. Stay away from Ishtar Sun God Day sunrise services and any whore church that puts those names up there, which they ought to know better. Oh, that's so unkind, Mark. We, we need to help those people. Uh, you know what? I've been talking about this for a long time. I would encourage others to do so. Blow the shofar. Sound the warning. But there comes a point at which the creator of the universe says, I'm sending my people there with, armed with the destroying weaponry. I'm sending them out and t- tell them to begin at my sanctuary. You want to help them? Sigh and cry at the abominations that are being done. What were those folks doing there that got the mark? Answer, they were sighing and crying. They were walking in obedience to him. They were saying, hey, I've been talking to you, and now I can't even get your attention. I'm going to sigh and cry. When the angel comes and wants to whack your head, don't blame me. Your blood is on your own head. So, yeah, folks, be as kind as you can. Be as blunt as you need to be. Be as uh, vocal as you should be. Do not keep silent. And for crying out loud, touch not the unclean thing. Stay away from the bunnies, the eggs, the Ishtar Sun God Day sunrise services, and everything associated with, well, kind of like that earlier Atbash, right? Everything associated with paganism with a golden calf.
Now, here's the funny thing. At least Aaron got it right, right? Tomorrow we'll have a feast to yod heh vav he said. Huh. Made it a golden calf. Does that, uh, isn't that, if you think about it, isn't that a little bit better than saying, tomorrow we're going to take what the creator of the universe did for us by sending his son to die for us on the cross. Ha, ha, ha. And we're going to name it after a pagan fertility goddess, celebrate it with the blood of sacrificed children, and finish it off with an Ishtar ham. Ha, ha. How's that for rubbing his face in it? Indeed, I tremble for my country, said Jefferson, when I remember that God is just, and his justice cannot sleep forever. By the way, remember that second Atbash? I mentioned this, that, that separates the I am the jealous Elohim here. How does he begin it and end it? This is the inner one that really is the, the brackets within the brackets. Take heed to yourself, he says, lest you make a Brit. A Brit, isn't that? A, a, a new covenant? No, just a, make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. Because that'll be a snare right there in the midst of you. Is there a snare in the midst of us? Oh, you bet, folks. You can go to Walmart on Monday morning and see how big of a snare it is. There'll be two aisles full of crap. It'll be marked down 70, 80, 90%. Oh, it looks like a really good deal. Look at all those marshmallow eggs. Mmm. Bring those home. Bring that abomination right into my house. Bring that curse right along with it. Oh, I don't believe that. Well, good. Not good. I don't care whether you believe it or not. There's a curse associated with things that he says are abomination to him. The sooner you figure it out, the better. The better for you and the better for your children. Because the scripture is clear on it. And the penalties, ultimately, uh, well, you can read it if you care and find out what they are. Again, what does it say inside this part about the do not make a covenant with the fake gods? Don't bow down to any other god. Because Yahuwah, who is, in fact, um, Kadosh, he is, I'm sorry, he's, he is Kadosh. He's supposed to be Kadosh. He's also Kanah. His name is Kana. He's a jealous L. Lest you make a covenant, go after their gods. Eat of their eat of their sacrifices. Eat of their bunnies and their eggs. If you take of their daughters and their sons, and your daughters go astray after their gods, and they make your sons go astray after their gods, isn't this just what exactly what's happening? Isn't it funny, folks? The same daughters and sons that are being told, oh, cut off your breasts, cut off your genitalia. God of the Bible, he doesn't know whether you have an any or an Audi. You're probably something different than what he made you. So don't worry about ever having children, but you can certainly uh, you know, mutate your genitalia, destroy your DNA, and become little abominations. Would that qualify as um, allowing your sons to be taken away and your daughters perverted and so forth? I, I can't help but think, yeah, the answer is yes on all of those scores. What fellowship has light with darkness? Are you the temple of the living God? Or are you going to let this pagan crap dwell therein? Touch not the unclean thing. Stay away from it. Okay, I see the comment. I'm not sure what the context is because I didn't read the whole long thread. But the Jews tampered upon the law and the prophets. Yeah, and I'm not sure which Jews he's talking about, but they weren't alone. Uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, the ten lost tribes, the whore church uh, has trampled on the law, the Torah, the prophets too. So there's a whole lot of trampling going on. And it's hard not to uh, not to say, oh, you look at throughout history and you see uh, tons and tons of repetitions. That's, that's my point. Uh, history doesn't repeat exactly. Remember, that's what Mark Twain said, but it rhymes. And so does prophecy. We see cycles in both. And we'll see prophetic elements that rhyme. And um, yes, there have been things that have been fulfilled before. Um, but I'm among those who suggest from an engineering standpoint that... Um, we are seeing a confluence of cycles building to a grand supercycle climax. You might even say a climax of biblical proportions. 
And I suspect that uh, whatever happened in 70 A.D., whatever happened with the time of the Maccabees, and as nasty as all of that was, ain't seen nothing yet. Just wait what we're going to see. And by the way, nukes would qualify as that uh, as well. So just be aware of it. But understand, folks, when, when you look at all of these things, uh, let me kind of summarize the, um, the, the elements that I think are so important today. We're seeing witnesses in the form of the days lining up. It always It's not like we haven't seen it before. About every six or seven years it will happen that um, the days of the pagan holidays, including uh, Pentecost and so forth, will line up with the actual Moedim of yod heh vav I think he, uh, he makes sure that that happens on occasion. It's, it's a great opportunity for witnessing. Um, but there are these other things as well. The fact that we're looking at this portion of Torah right as, uh, literally, elements of it were being repeated with the erection of the tabernacle way back when, and the Atbash. And I guess this is kind of the, the way that I'll, I'll wrap it up as well, because when I look at all of these before and after things, and I see what was happening here. And let's, let's see if there aren't some parallels. Um, we have the unfortunate incident with the golden calf. And now we have the unfortunate incident with the bunnies and eggs. And the Ishtar sun goddess, the fertility goddess. You see the parallels there. If you can't, well, once you see it, you can't unsee it, right? Before, these people would claim they didn't know any better. Afterwards, uh, well, they can no longer claim they were ignorant... And there remains no sacrifice for intentional sin. And in fact, what happened is Yah dwelled among them. He cleaned them up. Uh, willing-hearted, wise-hearted people came. They did some work. They got together. They made a place, a physical representation of something that later, we were told, has become a spiritual place for Yah to dwell. To dwell among him then, in the cloud, they could see the evidence of that. How today can we see the evidence that someone is walking in obedience and being filled with the Ruach HaKodesh? Well, uh, show me your faith by your works. That comes to mind. Uh, by their fruit, you shall know them, says uh, Yeshua. If I see somebody telling me that the Holy Spirit dwells within me, here, pass me the pork. Excuse me. <laughs> no sale. If I see somebody telling me, oh, I am a, uh, the, the, I am a dwelling place of the, the Holy Spirit, and uh, the temple is within me, so I'm going to go over and get my bunnies and eggs, and I'm going to celebrate Ishtar Sun God Day. Oh, I love Easter. Give me those irises, too. does kind of look like a body part, doesn't it? Oh, well, that's got to do with the fertility goddess. We're okay with that. Uh, excuse me? But mm, I'm not seeing the fruit there, either. How can we discern? It's not that hard. Show me your faith by your works. Understand. If, in fact, the Ruach dwells within you, then what? What should we expect? Just walk in obedience. It's not hard. Matter of fact, the um, Torah says it's not hard. Deuteronomy 30, Paul says it's not too hard. The one that wasn't twisted, you can do it. It's not over here. It's not across the sea. It's not up in heaven. You have to ask somebody to bring it to you. It's in your heart. It is supposed to be so that you can walk in it, so that you can do it. It starts, as Jeremiah said, with us remembering and learning that we've inherited lies from our fathers. It begins then with study to show yourself approved, continues with uh, recognize and learn. And as we learn, guess what? We're going to find out, oh, there were things that I was doing wrong. There's probably still things we're doing wrong. I'm not going to claim that there aren't. He is showing us those things. 
Uh, I've said this for uh, years, and I'm not up to 40 yet. That's the rabbinic uh, number where they say, you know, man isn't really wise till he's been through the Torah 40 times. Well, I don't know what the number is, maybe 39 times. But I do know that um, every time I go through it, each year I reread it and I find something new. That I go, wow, how did I miss that before? And part of the answer, I know, right? It's because of uh, what would be called familiarity bias or various kinds of terminology. It has to do with we recognize things in one place that we see in another place. So what does that mean? Well, it means like this year, this Atbash that I was pointing to, it jumped off the page at me, not because it hadn't been there all this time, and I haven't asked some questions year after year, why does he keep repeating this? But because in the context of a people who didn't know, and then who almost died, and then they do know, and now they start to walk like they know, I say, wow, could that be playing out again today? That's exactly where I've been headed. That's what I hope and pray we will see. A people who, some of them at least, not everybody died, remember, after the golden calf? 3,000 died that day. They took the the test, it seems, that Moshe devised. We see it in Numbers 5. Not everybody died. Those that survived, now, a lot of them died later. They still didn't learn the lesson, right? The lesson of the ten spies, they thought democracy mattered. Okay, we're not done. We're going to get more of all of these elements. Uh, We have more tests that each of us are going to see. But again, the thing that strikes me about this, about this Atbash, and the place where, when I look at the cycles, I see us right in between the open and the closed brackets here. We have been given all of these things. Here's what it's a, here's what it's like to build this temple, this mishkan, this uh, tabernacle, this uh, ohel of meeting, a place for His Spirit to dwell within us. Why does He keep telling us about this if it's all done away with and now spiritualized? Answer: Because it's not in our hearts yet. Because we now have to do exactly what those people were doing with the help of uh, Bezalel and Aholiab and Moshe. We have to learn and to let his Ruach dwell within us. We have to make a place for him. Cleanse it. Clean it out. And uh, by the way, there are warnings in Scripture. You clean out the place and you got rid of a, a demon, you might have seven more come out. If it's all clean, you don't occupy it. How do you fill it? With his Ruach. With study to show yourself approved. With walk in obedience. With understanding. Again, it's not hard, but it's a continual effort. And it's not a done deal. So uh, I, I look and I, I see the great big Atbash around El Kanah, the jealous God. And honestly, folks, I see it today. Uh, yep, I know. I, I look across the room here. There's people that will roll their eyes whenever I quote the line from Billy Graham, right? Um, if the Lord God in heaven does not judge the United States of America, he will owe a sincere apology to Sodom and Gomorrah. And the answer is, he was right. You look at what's going on today, it makes Sodom and Gomorrah pale. Pale by comparison. We're doing it to kids. They're cutting the genitalia off of little boys and girls. They're injecting them with drugs so that they never, ever learn what God made their sexuality for, much less how to reproduce themselves. You talk about destroying the human genome and injecting it with mRNA and modifications and chemical weapons and, oh yeah, we got nukes if that doesn't work. Thank you, Fauci. Let's go, Brandon. Folks, Sodom and Gomorrah were pikers compared to Sodom on the Potomac. If the Lord God in heaven doesn't judge this country, something is horribly wrong. And there's nobody listening to this, even the most jaded, that if they'll acknowledge that he even exists at all, can deny that there's truth in that. 
So again, what does it mean? It means we're looking for the closed bracket. We have yet to see people come together to build a place for him to dwell. Cleanse me. Help me. I believe. Strengthen thou my faith. All of the things that Scripture has told us about. What fellowship has, uh, you know, the pagan with that which is set apart to him? Answer, none. So we separate ourselves. We recognize it. Again, stay clear of any Ishtar sun god day crap from here on out. What fellowship do we have with it? Is that a, a oh, I'm going to get uh, an email that's going to tell me, you are, you're saying that if, if you do these things, if you keep Torah, the nuke won't hurt you. No. But I am saying if you're jonesing for it and asking for it and saying, here, watch me eat a pig, oh God. Here, let me have some bunnies and eggs. I'll eat the little ears off first because I just love old Ishtar. Well, if he smites you, then don't come running to me. There are, there are lots of reasons, in other words, to be really aware, to know the times and the seasons about now. And it's never been more important that we um, walk in obedience, have our eyes wide open, and do the things he says to do. And this is the way I will almost always close in prayer. We'll do it this way today, too. Pray that we be counted worthy to escape these things that are coming upon the earth. <clears throat> Pray that we be found doing his work when he returns. There's a narrow path. He says, few there be that find it. Pray that his Torah would be a lamp to our feet so that we can do what he says. Don't veer to the right or to the left. Stay on the narrow path. We're talking about a remnant here. It's not important that the masses understand because, as he's already warned us, they won't. But we need to. As for me and my house, we will serve yod heh Yeah, and him alone. So with that, um, I'll pause one more time. Any, any questions, any comments? Uh, let's close in prayer. Yahuwah Eloheinu, Yahuwah Echad, Abba, we thank you. We praise you, Father. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time upcoming of your spring feasts. Of this first one, when we remember the blood that was shed for us, the covering, the time of Pesach, all of the things that you did during that week leading up to what you did for us once for all, for the blood that was shed, for the Lamb, for all of those things that are both symbolic and physical and eternal, for the fact that we have been forgiven, that we have been made clean. And I say this now, Father, we walk in agreement. I believe. Take away my unbelief. Guide us, help us to walk in the kind of faith that moves mountains. More than a mustard seed, but the kind of faith that we're going to need to walk in such a time as this. To do the things, and you said we're going to do even greater miracles than the ones that we can read about and that we've seen. Let it be so, Abba. Help us to take that strength that no weapon formed against us will prosper. Because we can recognize and we can see all of those things that the satanic, fake gods of this world and those who serve them, and they are legion, would tell us we need to be afraid, be very afraid of. And we know that one of the things that is most repeated, if not the most, in your word is, fear not. Kazakh, be strong and of good courage. Help us, Father, to be strong and of good courage. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. 
Help us to be counted worthy to escape these things that are so clearly coming upon the earth and that are literally accelerating by the day. Help us to be found doing your work when you return. Help us to be overcomers. Guide us that we can help build a place for those who seek to come out and to be separate. That we can speak your truth boldly as we ought to. That we can blow that shofar of warning. We can't save those who will choose to have their blood on their own heads. But we pray, Father, that you would help us with those that are under our authority, those of our house, our family, our children, our loved ones, our wives, that we might do the things you would have us do in accord with your will, in your strength, that we would be the coverings, that we would be the witnesses for all of those who can and will make Teshuvah and return to you. And all of this we ask in your set-apart name, for you are our King, our Savior, our Redeemer. By your stripes we are healed. You are Yahuwah Rapha, our healer. Our banner, Yahuwah Nisi. You are the man of war in such a time as this. You are Yahuwah Zadiknu, Yahuwah Vitzivenu, Yahuwah Zebuot. You are our all-sufficient El Shaddai, and we thank you and praise you. Hallelujah. Amen. I'm not sure what that means. Oh, oh, wait a second. Here was another question that scrolled off. So, question. When does the term those days happen? Well, I think those days is used a lot. And um, my my response to that as a nerdy kind of guy would be, those days have happened before. They're happening now. They're definitely going to happen again. Okay, so then here's more clarification. Um, verse 33. For this is the covenant that I shall make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahuwah. And he asks, first coming or second coming? I will suggest that the context there, and I've already said this, but I'll repeat it, tells us the answer. It ain't happened yet. You can say it's all done away with. I will agree with those that say that uh, it applies to his first coming and his second, and it applies to other points in history besides. Yep, all of that is true. But as of right now, as I'm sitting here in um, southern Colorado on a nice sunny early spring day, there are still two houses, both of them still in exile. The house of Israel, the northern kingdom, the ten lost tribes. The house of Judah, the southern kingdom, the uh, three or two and a half uh, other lost tribes. Ahola and Aholaba, yeah, the whore church and the whore synagogue. And they are still separate. They have not been joined together as one stick, as Ezekiel prophesied in his hand. They have not been uh, returned. David, the house of David, yes, he rules over them spiritually, but he ain't come back with that flaming sword. He has not done away with those things. Uh, We are still not seeing a whole lot of things that will happen having happened yet, and including what Jeremiah 31 says right there, because it's still necessary for each of us to teach. Our brother teach our neighbor, saying, No, Yahuwah, because they don't even know his name. Most, most Christians don't even know that the word capital L-O-R-D is not his name. They don't know it. They don't know that it was replaced 7,000 times instead of yod heh vav So they will know that my name is the Lord. No, they don't know it. So if he says, I know him, but they don't know his name, yeah, those who say, I know him, but keep not his commandments, that's what John said. They don't know him. That's true. For they shall all know me, he says, from the least of them to the greatest. Hasn't happened yet. Uh, you know, 
people can disagree that it has happened, and I say, well, okay. But I look at Washington, D.C., all those places I've already named, and go, it ain't happened there. I can go out in my uh, in my neighborhood here. Well, my neighborhood, I have to walk like five miles to run into two or three people. But if I did, I'd find a half of them probably don't know his name. They certainly don't keep his commandments. And that's probably higher than um, most any major cesspool city in this uh, once free country. So uh, those days, those days aren't completed yet, I would say. Okay, I mean, I, and I know we have people, and, and I respect that, who believe it was all done in 70 AD. And um, I, I find that the arguments are interesting, but honestly, uh, certainly not compelling. Because, yeah, at the very best, it's disappointing if that's all there is. And we can even argue that the things that he said were going to be so dramatic and earth-shattering, we don't even all see that they actually happened or that they were that big of a deal when they happened. So, um, no, I don't believe all has been yet fulfilled, honestly. Okay, another QQQ. Does the New Covenant have... uh, Okay, so see, I don't like the term New Covenant. So the problem with the question is uh, it's a renewed covenant. He has renewed the covenant. Does it happen at the first coming or the second? He has renewed it. The question is the following. When, how many times does he have to do it for the rest of us to say, I choose life. I choose to follow. So, does the new covenant happen at the first coming or the second coming? Uh, No. The renewed covenant, the renewed covenant happens whenever each one of us as an individual says, I get it. I will call him Adonai, my Lord, and I will follow in obedience. Walk in his Torah. Save me. And thereafter, we do. And the new covenant, the renewed covenant with us, happens from that day forward. Does it happen for the rest of the world? Well, it ain't happened yet. That's all I'll say. Since it didn't happen at his first coming, then obviously uh, it hasn't happened yet. Uh, But he has renewed it for those who have chosen it. Okay? So the answer is, uh, you've got to rephrase the question in order to get the, uh, the context right to begin with. So in the meantime, I do think it's important. Uh, yes, because uh, Jeremiah 31 and um, verses 33 on have not happened yet. I will say it is important that we teach our neighbor, that we teach our brothers, that we be witnesses, that we walk, that we blow the shofar, that we uh, let our light shine, that we uh, demonstrate our faith by our works and through our fruit and all those kind of things. All right, let's close with the Aharonic blessings. We remember that Yahuwah spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to Aharon and his sons and say to them, Ivarekaka Yahuwah Varish Maraka Yair Yahuwah Panavaleka Vichaneka Isaiahuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhu